0: Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on February 28th, 2016 on the basis of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 through 25. How do you suppose you rally a large, diverse group of people together around a common cause? How do you get them to set aside all of the things that make them different? How do you... How do you get them to be a unified, harmonious group that is passionately dedicated to a single goal? Well, right now about half a dozen men and one woman who are running for president are trying to figure out the answer to that question. And yet in light of recent events, the answer kind of seems obvious, doesn't it? How do you rally a diverse group of people all together around a common cause? How do you get them to set aside their differences and become passionately dedicated to a single goal? Well, it's easy. You do so by very pointedly and very repeatedly insulting their intelligence. At least that strategy seems to be working for one of those candidates, right? Seems to be working really well for Donald Trump, who again won another state in the Republican primary election this past week. Now, the reason I ask that question is because the type of group that I just described is exactly the type of group that the church really ought to be. Unified rallied together around a common cause, willing to set aside all of the things that make us different, passionately dedicated toward a single goal. And yet, as you well know, people who are out there often look at the church and see, well, they see the exact opposite. They picture the church as a group of people that can't seem to get along with one another very well. They picture a group of people that maybe thinks they're better than everybody else. They picture a group of people that is more interested in serving themselves than in contributing anything of value to society. Whether they're right, I suppose, could be debated. But today we're going to consider a much more important question. How do we make sure that that's not us? How do we make sure that we're the type of group, the type of church that God wants us to be? As I mentioned before, today is kind of a day for cleaning house, for getting rid of and for driving out things that can creep into our hearts and our lives and even our churches that just don't belong. And just as you heard Jesus drive out the money changers and the merchants from the temple in today's gospel, so also In these words from 1 Corinthians, it is Paul's goal to drive out a number of things that have no place in God's house. In other words, he is going to lay out the secret for us being exactly the type of church that God would want us to be. And surprisingly, he is going to do it by very pointedly and very repeatedly insulting our intelligence. Let's take a look at these verses. Right at the very beginning, Paul makes it clear that when it comes to our relationship with God, intelligence, wisdom, reason, those things do have a very important place. You see, our our natural human reason causes us to sort of come at our relationship with God with certain assumptions about who he is and what he's like. And those assumptions are very important, they're very valuable, and they can even be true But the problem is that if we try and use that human wisdom to then go ahead and figure out exactly what God is like, that human wisdom, that human reason, will lead us to all kinds of false conclusions about God. Paul mentions two specific examples in these verses. He says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. In other words, the Jewish people valued power. And they assumed that God was a powerful person. Seems to make sense, right? But they valued power so much that when the long-awaited Messiah finally arrived, they sort of expected him to be juggling the stars in his hands and spinning the moon on his fingertips. And so even though Jesus did all kinds of miracles and demonstrated all kinds of power when he was here on this earth, well, things like helping lame people walk and helping hungry people eat. Those weren't exactly the displays of power those Jewish people were looking for. On the other hand, Paul says that Greeks value wisdom. Greeks expected God to be a a pretty smart guy. Makes sense, right? But they sort of figured that conversations about God should sort of go the way that their conversations went when they sat around Talking about things like Aristotle and Plato, their beloved, treasured Greek philosophers. You can imagine the reaction that they had when they read that part of the Bible that's where Jesus said that if you wanted to enter the kingdom of God, your faith needed to be like that of, well, of a little child. So Jewish people demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. What do you think Paul would say about Americans? How do we use our own natural reason to draw conclusions about what we think God should be like or what God should do? Paul might say that Americans value pragmatism. Okay, you want me to invest in this relationship with God? What am I going to get out of it? You want 60 minutes on Sunday morning? You want me to spend time reading my Bible personally and with my family? It better be worth my while. I better see instant results, right? Americans value pragmatism. Americans value convenience. Okay, so it seems clear that that this is the path God would want me to choose with my life. But if I choose that path, it's going to make a bunch of things much more difficult. I don't think God would want that, would he? Americans value convenience. Americans value forgiveness and second chances. And so maybe we say, well, sure, in all these ways, the, the paths I've taken with my life aren't the ones that God would want me to take. But, but after all, God is a loving God. He's a forgiving God. I'm sure he'll just wink and smile and look the other way. Americans value justice. And so maybe we say, well, sure, when it comes to me, I expect God to be very loving, very forgiving, give me as many chances as I need, but but that person over there that betrayed me, that person who is always apologizing but never really changing, boy, I sort of wish that God would just give him what he deserves. See, it's very natural for us to use that that natural wisdom and reason to sort of draw all kinds of conclusions about what we think God is like or what we think God should do. And then God comes along and he tells us what he's really like. He gives us his definition of justice. And that definition is that God's standard for you is absolute perfection. It's that close isn't going to cut it. It's that trying your best won't be good enough. It's that every single sin that you commit is accounted for by God and must be punished by God. God comes along and he gives you his definition of love and forgiveness. It means that he can't just look the other way But it means that because he loves you, he's going to watch his son pay for your sins so that you don't have to. It means that he will gladly watch his son suffer and die so that we rebels and we ingrates get to go free. God comes along and he gives us his definition of pragmatism. What does God want you to put into a relationship with God, what do you put into your salvation? Well, nothing. Absolutely nothing. In fact, you give up trying, you stop working, and instead you put your trust in what God's Son has done for you. And what do you get out of it? Well, you get eternal life. God gives us his definition of power, which looks a whole lot like weakness and vulnerability. God gives us his definition of convenience. He tells us that the path that ends up at the destination, the path that ends up in eternal life is probably not going to be the convenient one. It's probably going to be the long, difficult, painful one. That's who God tells us he is. And all of those things are are summed up and seen no more clearly than, than in Jesus Christ, God's Son, hanging on a cross. And do you know who finds those things to be ridiculous and foolish and offensive and upsetting? Absolutely everyone. Paul says this. He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Friends, the message of who God really is, the message seen no more clearly than at the cross, is a message that is both foolish and offensive to everyone by nature. That's why the first thing that has no place in God's house is human intuition. Trying to guess our way into figuring out God. If we were left to ourselves, the the God that we would design, the God that we would craft and envision would be all wrong. And when God comes and he tells us what he's really like, we find it to be offensive and foolish by nature. There is no place in God's house for natural human intuition about God. But now maybe some of you are asking yourselves or saying to yourselves, you know, Pastor Bauer, that message that you keep calling foolish, and offensive? Yeah, I actually happen to believe that. And to this point, I've been staking my entire eternity on that. I told you Paul was going to insult your intelligence a little bit, right? That message of the cross is foolish and offensive to all of us by nature, and yet we still believe it. And Paul wants you to consider the obvious, obvious question: Why? In other words, how do you explain that? Why in the world do you keep coming to hear that message of the cross? Why are you staking not only your eternity, but the eternity of your loved ones on that message? And if what Paul says here is true, then the answer is obvious, isn't it? We can't take absolutely any credit for that fact. All of the credit for the fact that we believe this message belongs to God. In fact, Paul doesn't specifically say it here, but all of the credit for the fact that we believe this message belongs to the Holy Spirit. And friends, there are a couple of very important reasons why that matters so much. You see, the fact that we believe this message of the cross, it gives us absolutely no reason to feel that we are morally better or intellectually superior to anybody else how easy it is for us to think those kinds of things right as if as if we in the church are the smart people who have who have figured out the truth about god and all of those people who are doubters and skeptics and unbelievers boy they must be playing with a few cards short of a full deck how easy when when someone joins us to sort of look at that person and think to ourselves well sure i'm I'm glad they're here, but they don't really look like they belong. They don't quite dress the way that we do around here. They don't quite act or talk the way that we do. Their their kids aren't quite behaved the way that we expect them to be. So sure, I I hope you stay, I hope you come back, but just know that you need to change in all of those ways. Each one of those thoughts is nothing other than a way of saying you know, I deserve this faith that I have. I deserve to be a part of a church, but sorry, you don't. Paul makes it very clear that that intuition has no place in God's church. None of us have just figured out the truth about God. We don't deserve the credit for that. God gets all of the credit for that, which means that there is also no place in God's house for pride, or arrogance, or condescension. The fact that we believe, the fact that we are here is not not a credit to ourselves, but only testimony to God's power and God's grace. The second reason why that truth is so important, again, this message of the cross is, is absolutely foolish and absolutely offensive to absolutely everyone, which not only leads us to ask, well, then why do I believe it? It also leads us to ask, why would anyone else believe it? In other words, there's this mission that God has given us as a church and to each one of us as individual Christians. And it is to take that message of the cross and take it to the world around us. To take that message of the cross and share it with others. That foolish, offensive message. Why in the world would anyone believe it? Well, again, if the answer to that question can't be found in human heads or human hearts, then all of the credit for that must go to God. Here's how Paul puts it. He says, Yes, the message of the cross is foolish and offensive, but God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, through that message of the cross, to save those who believe. Friends, that Same foolish, offensive message is also a powerful tool in the hands of our powerful God to create faith in the hearts of people who hear it. So Easter's coming up. You maybe were aware of that. It's four weeks from today. And over the course of the next four weeks, you're going to hear me talking specifically about two ways in which we as a group of Christians can get the message of the cross out to the world around us. First of all, on Saturday, March 19th, we're going to get out into the community and visit a number of people who are on our church's prospect list and invite them to join us on Easter Sunday to hear that message of the cross. Secondly, you're going to hear me encourage you to think about and pray about and ultimately do something about the people that God has put in your lives who don't know that message of the cross or who aren't hearing that message of the cross. Now, if what Paul says here is really true, then then it has a couple of important implications for our mission. First of all, it is an urgent one. Whether you're talking about the people on our church's list or on your personal list, if we just leave those people alone, they are never going to stumble upon the truth of God on their own. It couldn't happen. Not even in a million years. They need someone to come and tell them the message of the cross as much as you and I did. So if what Paul is saying here is true, then another thing that there is no place for in God's house is apathy. About our mission. Our mission is a, an urgent one. Secondly, as we think about the potential success or failure of that mission, our attitude toward that mission will always be one of incredible optimism. As we go out and share that message of the cross, do you know what percent of the people we share it with will find it foolish and offensive by nature? 100%. Every last one. Where's the optimism in that, you might say? Well, again, if the success for the mission doesn't depend on us and if it doesn't depend on on the attitudes and the hearts of the people who hear it, it must depend on the power and grace of God. And look around. Look at how he is doing at his job. Look at how many people believe that foolish, offensive message. Consider the billions of people worldwide who believe it as we think about our mission there is no place in god's house for pessimism we have every reason to be hopeful and optimistic as god takes that foolish message and uses it as his powerful tool to work faith in people's hearts you know the word that paul uses here to refer to that message it's translated stumbling block Picture this giant stone right in the path that everyone is trying to travel. And as everyone comes across that big, giant stone, there's, there's nothing that they can possibly do except trip over it. Well, what Paul is saying here is that God looks at that big, giant stone, that stumbling block, and he says, I'm actually going to make that the foundation. I'm going to make that the cornerstone on which I build my church. Seems ridiculous, right? And yet here, Paul shows us exactly why God does that. Because that foolish and offensive message of the cross is the very thing that God uses. The very thing that God uses to make us the church that he wants us to be. A group of people who is united around a common cause, willing to put aside all of our differences, and passionately dedicated toward a common goal. In other words, by building his church on a message that appears to be so foolish, God shows just how wise he really is. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.